2: Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes traumatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13.
0: This card says you have many adventures ahead of you. Draw two more cards, Sibylla, dear.
3: Can you teach me to read cards and tell fortunes?
0: For two guilders an hour.
3: You only charge one guilder for the reading. Two
0: guilders is a pittance compared to what you'll make. Look at this card. It means money. Lots of it. And this second card is powerful men.
3: That's too vague. What else can you tell me?
0: Another Gilder for another two cards. Oh, oh no. What? You will be remembered after you pass on from this world.
3: That's good then. Do you know what I'll be famous for? Well?
0: No, 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 I don't. I think you should leave now.
3: What about my lessons? You were going to teach me-
0: Another time, Sibylla. Right now, I'm i done with your cards for today.
3: Fine. I'll learn how to read fortunes from Madame Francisca. I'm sure she would be more than happy to take my two guilders an hour.
0: Uh, Only because she's a fraud and wouldn't see what I saw coming for
2: you. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy.
4: And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our first episode on Blonde Dolly, a Dutch woman who lived a double life as a society lecturer and an upscale sex worker before she was murdered.
2: If you like the show, we'd immensely appreciate if you could leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there because a new episode comes out every Tuesday.
4: You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. The short life in the 1959 murder of Sibylla Alida Johanna Niemens, known as the Blonde Dolly, has fascinated the Dutch public and press for over six decades.
2: Sibylla not only survived the Great Depression and World War II during the course of her 32 years, she reinvented herself multiple times in the process. She gained access to the highest echelons of society and, perhaps, to the ebb and flow of diplomatic relations during the Cold War. Her death became a public obsession.
4: Sibylla was a seamstress, fortune teller, sex worker, model, philanthropist, poetry lover, and property owner.
2: She's been the subject of books, articles, a film, and even a cabaret act. There are endless speculations and theories about how she lived and how she died. But they all begin in the same place, her home country of the Netherlands.
4: The Netherlands is famous as the land of windmills, tulips, and cheese, with a coastline of beautiful beaches. The capital city of Amsterdam is one of the most
2: beautiful and picturesque cities in Europe. It was in Amsterdam on September 27, 1927, that Sibylla Alida Johanna Niemens, nicknamed Suze, was born to the shoemaker Hendrik and his wife Johanna.
4: Sibylla grew up in a world of turmoil. Three years after Sibylla's birth, Holland was gripped by the worldwide Great Depression in 1930.
2: Soon after, Sibylla's mother Johanna developed cancer and was admitted to a hospital. Unable to care for Sibylla or her little brother, her father Hendrik was forced to send his kids 40 miles away to a children's home named Chroetkechten in the town of Jeanvort. Jean Voort was a popular seaside resort with a long sandy beach and was a playground of the Dutch upper and middle classes. We don't know much about Sibylla's childhood in Jean Voort other than her mother died sometime before the Depression was over.
4: But the Depression was only the beginning of the troubles the Netherlands would face in the coming years. In 1940, when Sibylla was 13 years old, the Nazis invaded Holland and the Dutch quickly surrendered.
2: The Allied bombing raids of the Netherlands began in 1941. The entire country, including Sibylla and the Groot schoolchildren, would need to take shelter during air raids.
4: By 1942, the Germans transformed the coastal town of Janvoort into a fortified post in response to the building Allied aggression. They evacuated all the residents and leveled houses and hotels to build trenches on the beach, anticipating a British invasion by sea. As the 1942 evacuation of Janvoort proceeded, Sibylla, her brother, and the other children at the Groot School were forced to leave. For the first time in years, Sibylla returned to their father in Amsterdam. But when they arrived home, they found that their father, Hendrik, had remarried. They now had a stepmother.
5: You mustn't treat her in such a way, Sibylla. She's the woman I love.
3: Then she mustn't ruin my clothes.
5: Oh, but my dear, she was only trying to patch a few holes.
3: Trying is right. Her stitching looks like the work of a blind, drunk dog.
5: Oh, I should never have sent you away. They've taught
4: you no respect.
3: On the contrary, Papa. They taught us to respect people that deserve it.
4: Needless to say, Sibylla did not get along with her stepmother. In fact, she found her home life so oppressive. The 15-year-old girl preferred taking to the streets of war-torn Amsterdam rather than remain in the company of her family.
2: And war-torn it was. In 1942, the war had brought economic strife to Amsterdam. Many people were unemployed, homeless, and struggling to stay alive. There was a curfew imposed by the German occupiers and a mandatory blackout at night to avoid being detected by enemy aircraft.
4: Nonetheless, Sibylla started spending time in Amsterdam cafes and bars, preferring the vibrant life of the streets to the troubled state of her
2: home. It was in pursuit of this more luxurious lifestyle that, in 1942, 15-year-old Sibylla met a handsome Italian sailor.
3: You speak very good Dutch, sailor. Where are you from?
1: Italia. The land of wine, women, song, and pasta.
3: (laughs) Yes. Pasta, of course. I've always admired that uh, kind of hat.
1: You have no idea what pasta is, do you?
3: I made an educated guess.
1: You don't wear pasta. You eat it. They are noodles.
3: Oh, like Bami from Indonesia. What was the word you used again? Pasta. Have you been in Holland long?
1: I've been here, I've been there. But in all my travels, I have never met such a beautiful woman as you.
3: You'd probably say that to all the girls.
1: No, no, ragazza. Only you.
3: Is that so? Well, maybe you can cook me some of that pasta and we'll see where things go.
1: I have everything we would need to make it back at my apartment on Kirkstraat.
2: The Italian sailor and Sibilla moved in together on Kirkstrat within days of their first meeting.
4: Sibilla's father Hendrik was frantic when he discovered his daughter was missing.
2: Hendrik went to the police with a photo of Sibilla in hopes of finding her. You would think that that would be hard in a big city, and yet it didn't take long for the police to find Sibilla and the Italian. He was notorious for luring young girls into prostitution and becoming their pimp. Are you sure
6: this is where she is? We've had numerous reports of a smooth-talking Italian residing here, with several women that eventually... well, they either disappear or they turn up in Valen. Do you think she's already... Oh. Hopefully it's not too late and he hasn't started peddling her. If he's done anything to my daughter, please, shoot him.
5: Police! Can
6: I help you, officer? Is there a young girl here named Sibilla? I see Sibilla in the window. Sibilla, it's Papa. Papa?
3: Papa, what are you doing here?
6: Sir, you're coming down to the precinct.
1: I have done nothing wrong except spend a night with the
6: woman I love. I'm sure you say that to all of your girls before you ship them off to God knows where to do God knows what. Sibilla, come down. I'm taking you home.
3: Papa, I don't want to go home. I love him.
6: This is an outrage.
1: All of my girls are well fed and clean. There is no need to stop a consenting woman from taking up this life.
6: Women working in this trade have to be 18. Sibylla here is 15. What? Like you didn't know. I'm sure you have clients who pay just for this.
3: What's gonna happen to him? Papa!
4: Hendrik was relieved to have his daughter back under his protection. He thought he had saved Sibilla from a life as a sex worker. He and his wife had other, better plans for Sibilla they would send her for training to become a seamstress.
2: By all accounts, Sibylla continued to live with her family for the next six years. She may have worked as a seamstress, and there are accounts of her working as a fortune teller as well.
4: But considering that her work was in De Amsterdam's red light district, she may have been doing something else, too.
3: We're going out for a drink, Sibylla. Coming? Can't. Only made a couple of guilders telling fortunes today, and no one needed their clothes mended.
0: Have you thought of sewing for the girls down on De They're always getting their dresses torn up by those rough German boys.
3: How much do you charge them for, you know?
0: Depends on what and how long. I made 20 guilders today from just a few customers.
3: (laughs) Sounds like I'm in the wrong business.
0: Careful, Sibilla. Once you head down this path, it's hard to return.
3: How can you know if something's not right for you without trying it first? Tell you what, I'll come out to the bar with you tonight if you can tell me a little bit more about what I'd have to do.
4: In his 2008 book, Blonde Dolly, author Thomas Ross, notes that sewing shops were often fronts for brothels in Amsterdam. So even if Sibylla was working in a sewing shop as a seamstress, she would have come into contact with plenty of sex workers.
2: So the environment her father tried to save her from became her new workplace.
4: Well, that's what it looks like. Amsterdam was crawling with homesick, moneyed German soldiers in 1942. They were hungry for distraction. So most likely at 15, Sibylla began a new career as a sex worker.
2: Author Thomas Ross goes so far as to speculate that Sibylla was entertaining high-level German officers, which would help explain how she was able to save so much money over the next few years.
4: If Thomas Ross's theory is correct, Sibylla would have come into contact with not only German officers, but also Dutch collaborators, and may have been privy to confidential discussions.
2: As she entered the world of Amsterdam's red light district, the war continued to rage on. Through the early 1940s, Holland suffered from intense periods of starvation due to blockades preventing food and supplies from entering the country.
4: In Amsterdam, Allied aerial assaults continuously bombarded the city and became a reality all the city's
0: citizens had to deal with.
3: I swear they planned these raids to happen just as our nights are getting started.
0: I hope those are British or American planes. They say they're very close to victory.
3: Does it matter if we're too broke to celebrate the end of the war?
0: Let's hurry. That sounded close.
3: Perhaps in the shelter there will be a man who's afraid and desperate for company.
0: (laughs) Oh my, Sibylla, you are insatiable.
2: Luckily, Sibilla survived these attacks. She would make it out of the war alive, unlike so many of her countrymen.
4: But amidst the celebratory atmosphere after the German surrender in 1945, 17-year-old Sibylla couldn't have known that her life was already more than halfway over.
2: Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message.
4: And now, back to the story. Sibylla Niemann's was 17 on May 7, 1945, when the Germans surrendered. There were celebrations throughout Holland and throughout the world.
2: Well, she must have been relieved. What a joyous time for the Dutch people.
4: Some of the first liberators to march into Holland were the Cape Breton Highlanders from Canada, who were famous for their pipe music. They dazzled the Dutch who flooded the streets shouting and laughing.
2: It was the end of five years of occupation and there was much to celebrate.
4: The day after liberation, crowds gathered in the Dam Square in Amsterdam. They danced and sang gleefully together. But suddenly, the crowd heard shots coming from a window above the square. People panicked and ran in all directions.
2: The shots were fired from the Industriella de Hrote Club, located in a beautiful 19th century building. After surrender, the Nazis were drowning their sorrows with alcohol when they started drunkenly firing. You're going to miss us when we're gone.
3: Not if you keep shooting like that, I won't. Besides, you should be happy. You're going home to your family. Happy?
5: Our country is in worse shape than yours but you've been such a comfort. I wish you luck with your business. I doubt it'll be as booming as it was during wartime, but luck nonetheless.
3: Thank you, that's kind.
4: After the Germans left, many of the Dutch women who had voluntarily slept with German soldiers had their heads shaved and were paraded through the streets. There were reports that sex workers were punished in France for serving the Germans, but not so in Holland. The only women targeted had been the ones who didn't demand payment. Sibylla was lucky to have escaped retribution.
2: The Netherlands, like all of Europe, faced a lengthy process of post-war healing and rebuilding. Their infrastructure was decimated. There was no public transport, no food or goods available. Sibylla went back to De and resumed business as the country recovered. There were new groups of soldiers to serve.
4: The Canadian troops had supplies, and although it was against the rules, they started to barter them with the Dutch, especially the Dutch women. After a long and hard war, the Dutch girls were excited to fraternize with the handsome Canadians.
2: After liberation in 1945, thousands of Canadian men roamed Holland and it resulted in many Dutch-Canadian relationships and marriages. There was also a rise in sexually transmitted infections among the troops and the women that slept with them, which certainly included the sex workers of Amsterdam.
4: So the Germans warning to Sibylla that there would be no business after the war turned out not to be true. Sibylla was now 18 and probably already contemplating her future in post-war Holland. During the next few years, she continued saving money. By 1948, 21-year-old Sibylla was intrigued by the idea of
2: moving to The Hague. But The Hague was in bad shape. It had been bombed badly in the early part of the war by the Germans in the Battle for The Hague. Then, towards the end of the war, the British Royal Air Force mistakenly bombed The Hague's beautiful historic district instead of a German artillery installation.
4: Still, The Hague continued to gain world prominence after the war. The United Nations established the International Court of Justice in The Hague. They also played host to the European Congress meetings that held talks on European unity and collaboration. The Congress was a prelude to the European Union.
2: With the presence of both the local government and foreign diplomats in the city's post-war expansion, The Hague seemed like a good bet for Sibylla's next adventure. So she left Amsterdam and made her way south. Are you Marie? Who wants to know?
3: I'm Sibylla, a friend of Lisa's from Amsterdam.
0: Oh yes, she said you were moving to The Hague. How is Lisa these days?
3: She's doing very well for herself. I tried to convince her to come with me, but she's happy with her business back in Amsterdam.
0: I've been trying to talk sense into her for years, but do come in. You're interested in renting a room?
3: I am. This seems like a quiet neighborhood. Do the cops bother you girls?
0: Ha! We keep the cops happy, and they leave us alone.
3: Sounds nice. Is this the room?
0: Yes. Sorry, but there's no window to the street.
3: Uh, I don't need a window.
0: Well, la-dee-da. You hear that, ladies? Our new arrival, Sibilla, doesn't need a window. Has some kind of strategy.
3: This is a town of government officials and foreign diplomats. You girls should add a little more class to your act.
0: To each their own. What should we call you?
3: I went by Molly back in Amsterdam.
0: We've got a Molly already. Don't want anyone to get confused.
3: What'd she look like? Pale,
0: pretty, blonde...
3: Well, my hair's dark so i'll just go by dark molly shouldn't confuse anyone
4: sibylla set up shop in a rented room on 21 dublestrat then moved to 71 Scheldestraat. dark molly was now working alongside other girls in the hague's red light district shortly after she dyed her hair and renamed herself blonde dolly
2: blonde dolly began to attract a higher end clientele as she was not a typical city sex worker, she dressed in a suit and remained indoors rather than advertising herself at the window while wearing skimpy outfits. Her strategy paid off. Within two years, she had saved enough money to buy a house. In 1950, Sibylla moved to her own home, a two-story cottage on 498
4: New Ahean. Dolly was a sex worker with class. She was now 23 and had acquired both a taste for finer things and a determination to advance socially as well as financially.
2: She found the opportunity when she met Bodo Vandenberg.
4: Bodo was the principal violinist for the Residence Orchestra, also known as the Hague Philharmonic. This orchestra had a unique history. Founded in 1904, it was made famous when the German composer Richard Strauss conducted his own works. We don't know how Bodo and Sibilla met, but it's likely that either he had been a client or they had been introduced by mutual friends. There was a 23-year age difference. Bodo was old enough to be her father.
2: Sibylla, now 22, married the 45-year-old Bodo in March 1950. Once again, Blonde Dolly reinvented herself as Sibylla Vandenberg. Sibylla's new social circle was very different from the people she associated with in her previous life. Her marriage launched her into a new circle of wealthy patrons, industrialists, politicians, fashion designers, and artists. Bodo acted as a mentor to her and schooled her in music and the arts, though it's not clear whether he knew about her previous profession.
1: I think you'll enjoy tonight's concert. We're doing the three B's.
3: The three B's?
1: Bach, Beethoven, and Brahms, darling. They are the cornerstones of classical music.
3: Must I get acquainted with them all at once? I was able to truly enjoy our dive into Mozart's work because we were able to focus on him alone. Though I suppose it would be nice to have you explain the nuances of all three together, if they're always grouped this way.
1: Perhaps I shouldn't confuse you with the other B, Berlioz. He was the third before they kicked him out in favor of Brahms.
3: They couldn't make room for a fourth (laughs) B.
1: I've seen concerts called the three Bs plus one. By the way, I saw you chatting with a uniformed man that last Sunday's concert. He looked cross. I hope there's no trouble.
3: Oh, him. He was telling me about his health concerns. You know how everyone feels they can open up to me about their troubles. Don't worry, dear. It was nothing.
4: The author, Thomas Ross, speculates that during Bodo's concerts, Sibylla may have identified former high-profile clients and started blackmailing them.
2: That would account for her continuing to accumulate money and purchase more property. Reports indicate she ceased being a sex worker during her marriage and devoted herself to philanthropic activities.
4: Besides the local concerts of the Hague Philharmonic, the orchestra traveled throughout Europe, of course, Mrs. Sibylla Vandenberg was along for the ride. She hobnobbed with concert goers, became acquainted with Parisian fashion, spent time among the literary circles in London, and acquired a taste for poetry.
2: She became a fan of the 19th century Flemish poet and priest Guido Giselle and the Dutch poet Pietrus Augustus de Genestet. With her new social circle, she would give readings at events. Dressed in a black cheek dress and perfectly coiffed hair, she would enthrall her audience.
0: Mrs. Vandenberg, so nice to see you at our monthly fundraiser. I so enjoyed the concert last night. Your husband played Beethoven beautifully.
3: Thank you. If you like Beethoven, the next concert series will be all three B's.
0: The three B's?
3: Beethoven, Bach, and Brahms. Though I've always preferred Berlioz to Brahms myself. He should really be that third B.
0: Honestly, I've never been one to judge classical composers too harshly. They know how to make music better than I ever will. Poetry, however, is more my speed. I hear you will be reciting from the work of Pietrus Augustus de Guinistet.
3: I'm reading Ars Longa Vita Brevis, which translated means Art is Long, Life is Short.
0: It's as if he knew he wouldn't live past 32.
3: That's why we should all strive to live up to our potential.
0: I so enjoy your monthly readings, and we are so grateful for your donations.
3: Oh, do excuse me. I'm about to be introduced. So nice to chat with you.
5: Ladies and gentlemen, I present Mrs. Sibylla Vandenberg, a donor to our hospital and many other charities in The Hague. She will recite one of her favorite poems.
4: Sibylla became quite popular and was known for her lectures to wealthy patrons and friends, though the majority of her audience wouldn't have known that they were listening to a former sex worker.
2: Her husband, Boto, encouraged her, though he doesn't seem to have actually liked her very much. It is reported that he described her, quote... She was not beautiful nor ugly, but had tired charm, end quote.
4: It's not a surprise, then, that within a year of their marriage, Bodo and Sibilla separated. In 1951, they filed for divorce, though it took a number of years and large amounts of money for the divorce to
2: go through. To support herself, Sibilla would have to go back to her previous life as a sex worker.
4: We'll return to our story in just a
0: moment.
2: And now, let's continue our story.
4: In 1951, 24 year old Sibylla Vandenberg separated from her husband Boto. Following the separation, she became an escort to parliament members, senior military officers, and politicians. A journalist once caught Professor Peter Oud coming out of Sibylla's house. He was the chairman of the Dutch parliament head of a major political party, VVD, and former Rotterdam mayor.
1: Captain, so nice to see you. I didn't know you were a Mozart fan.
6: We have season tickets, Professor Out. The wife likes a C and be seen.
1: Speaking of which, did you notice our uh, mutual lady friend, Mrs. Vandenberg, in the audience?
6: She actually approached me. Luckily, my wife was at the bar.
1: Word around town is that she's separated from the violinist, but I assume that's just speculation.
6: I know that for a fact. She made it clear she was back in business.
1: Is she? Interesting.
6: Are you thinking of going back to her? Shh, 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 shh. keep your voice down. If she can stay discreet, I don't see why I shouldn't. <laughs> I'm sure she's the very soul of discretion.
4: Sibylla documented all the names of her clients in blue notebooks. She had connections in high places, including the police, which meant that anything she came across could be useful information to pass along for the right price.
2: Meanwhile, with sound financial advice from her social circle, she continued to build her real estate and investment portfolios throughout the 1950s. By
4: 1957, her real estate holdings included a total of eight properties in the section of Bijoudenhout in The Hague. This was the part of the city that the Allies had bombed by mistake. It was the site of new construction funded by the United States Marshall Plan for the post-war reconstruction.
2: Sibilla was purchasing and renting out buildings and taking advantage of the post-war building boom. Her sizable portfolio and business activities prompted her to hire an accountant, Corda Braun, with whom she became very close. But she continued as a sex worker and would entertain as many as 25 clients over the course of a day. On other days, she found time to lecture at hospitals and old-age homes.
5: I do find your talk so inspiring, Mrs. Vandenberg. Looking forward to today's talk as we get so lonely here.
3: I hope Guido Giselle's poem makes you feel less lonely. He was a rebel and a romantic. It got him into a lot of trouble with the bosses, the higher clergy.
5: I love your perspective and insights, Mrs. Vandenberg. Could you stay later this evening as we're having a dance tonight?
3: I'm so sorry. I have another engagement and my dance card is full, (laughs) but I do appreciate the invitation.
2: That line about the dance card was a private joke of hers, so she was an arch lecturer by day and escort by night.
4: That's what it appears. She also did some modeling. There are photos of her modeling in hoko cheer fashions, a chic raincoat, hat, umbrella, and even swimsuits. Sibylla carried on with business as usual as she led her double lives. One as an educated lecturer who rubbed shoulders with the elite, and one as a sex worker who entertained the powerful.
2: Technically, though, she was still Mrs. Vandenberg and married to Boto. Sibylla was at the tail end of a six-year negotiation over the divorce settlement, and Sibilla had to hand over a lot of money to Boto. But her accountant, and now lover, Cortebron, didn't seem to suggest that she should do otherwise. You'll never be free of him unless you pay.
3: I don't have enough money in the main account to pay Bodo's ransom.
1: We can transfer from the Rotterdam account.
3: I just wish we could find a way around this, without my having to be extorted.
1: Just be glad he's not demanding your property.
3: I am. (sighs) Make the arrangements, Cor. I'll sign what I have to sign. You just make sure the money gets to where it needs to go so that I never have to think about this again.
4: Consider it done, my darling.
3: Thank you, Cor. I can always count on you.
4: In 1957, 30-year-old Sibylla paid off Bodo with 3,000 guilders. In today's money, that's about $90,000. Perhaps he was holding her dual identity against her, and her only option was to buy his silence.
2: It's worth wondering why she married Bodo in the first place. It certainly wasn't for money, as she had plenty. Sibylla probably sought respectability and introductions to a new class of people. She managed to get both.
4: Around the same time as her divorce in 1957, she became concerned with a new report from Germany. A 24-year-old sex worker named Rosemary Nitrobit was found in her luxury Frankfurt apartment, strangled with a head wound.
2: Rosemary was wealthy and procured her customers while driving around in a Mercedes Roadster. But the authorities took their time finding a suspect and lost much of the evidence during the investigation. There were also rumors that Rosemary's high-profile clients were blocking the case for fear of exposure.
4: There's no doubt the murder would have stuck with Sibilla. She, too, was a wealthy sex worker who procured high-profile clients. Perhaps the similarities worried her.
2: Then, about a year later, in December 1958, another sex worker, Marika Van Es, was murdered right in Sibilla's neighborhood.
4: That's when Sibylla took action. First, she got a guard dog, a large black herding dog that she named Nikki. But she knew that a dog couldn't protect her from everything, so next, she hired a bodyguard.
2: Gerard van Vergde, 28, was a big and menacing-looking man. He seemed right for the job, despite having a criminal record. Sibylla hired him for 50 Dutch guilders, or about $225 in today's rates, per day. If she could get protection against intruders or violence against her, it would be a bargain.
4: But what she didn't bargain for was that Herard developed a crush on her. At first, she may not have been aware of his deep feelings for her, but in time, his desire for her escalated and he developed fantasies about her and about their relationship. He even shared them with his friends and his family.
6: Good evening, Mother. I brought wine.
3: Gerard. This is expensive. Are we celebrating something?
6: I'm engaged.
3: Congratulations. To see Billa, the woman that you work for?
6: Yes, Mother. I'm so happy. I'll bring her here to meet you soon, I promise.
3: Well, tell me how it happened.
6: We were at a cafe, and I asked her if she would want to get married again. She was divorced last year, and she said yes.
3: Did you ask if she'd want to get married again to you?
6: Why would I do that? She already said yes.
3: Gerard, sweetheart, I'm not sure that you— Why can't you just be happy for me? I am happy for you. Or I would be, if it sounded like you were really engaged. I just worry that you're setting yourself up for disappointment here, and I don't want you to—
4: Even if Gerard was wrong about what he meant to Sibylla, he did actually know her, and her life fairly intimately.
2: Hirard was in a good position to witness Sibilla's visitors and most likely knew the identities of her high-profile clients.
4: Besides Professor Oud, there was a rumor that the foreign minister, Josef Loons visited Sibilla. There were also sightings of her meeting in a restaurant with a Russian attaché from the Soviet Embassy. Mrs. Vandenberg, so nice
5: to meet again.
3: I see you've already ordered your vodka, Mr. Petrov.
5: It's not the best vodka. Maybe when relations thaw a bit with the Dutch, we can import the decent stuff.
3: (laughs) How are relations these days?
5: (laughs) Why don't you ask one of your Dutch
3: clients? (laughs) Because I'd much rather ask you. How about you tell me something I don't know for every kiss I give you? Only kisses? Depends how much you have to tell me. The relations
4: between the Netherlands and the Soviet Union had been tense since the end of the Second World War, but that didn't stop Sibylla from engaging in relations with a Russian, especially one who had information that she might be able to use.
2: She certainly didn't need the money by this point in the late 1950s. Sibylla had plenty of financial resources. She had accounts in banks in Amsterdam, Rotterdam, Hamburg, and Antwerp. She owned eight properties in The Hague that were all rented out. She had investments in jewelry, gold coins, and fur coats.
4: But in the back of her mind, she couldn't forget about Rosemary Nitrobit and Marika Van Es. Her wealth and her profession both made her a target. And having Gerard around was a source of comfort.
2: Usually.
3: Gerard, could you hand me my coat? I need to go to the bank.
6: Mrs. Sibilla, Sybilla, I...
3: Gerard, please don't. Just give me my coat. Here. Thank you. Please don't look at me like that.
6: I see your men coming and going. No one loves you like I do.
3: They aren't supposed to love me. My point. Gerard, listen to me carefully. I do not reciprocate your feelings.
6: But I've already told my parents we're engaged!
3: Gerard, I appreciate your loyalty, but... maybe this is where we part ways.
6: No! No, don't say that, please.
3: Then I need your word that you'll stop trying to date me. I'm not your girlfriend. I'm not your fiancé. I'm your boss.
6: If I can keep my job, I promise.
2: Well, that must have been awkward, having your bodyguard in love with you.
4: Well, maybe she liked it in a way. She knew he would go that extra mile if anyone tried to harm her.
2: Well, on the other hand, he could be a threat to her clients if he thought they were competition or they wanted to hurt her.
4: Perhaps Girard knew about Sibylla's affair with her accountant Corps, for example. He would have known that the two of them would often go on trips out of town to check up on her investments
2: and accounts. Sibylla's next trip with Cora was planned for Monday, November 2nd, 1959. They were supposed to go to Antwerp in Belgium, about an hour and a half drive from The Hague.
4: Hirard offered to stay overnight on Friday, October 30th, just three days before the planned trip to Antwerp. He slept on the first floor in the living area. The dog, Nikki was upstairs in the master bedroom.
2: That night... Sibylla left money on the nightstand, as well as one of her blue notebooks, tied shut with a ribbon. She put on a sleeveless white nightgown and slipped into bed beneath her satin duvet. Herard's accounts of the next few days have changed a number of times, so we're not quite sure what happened when, if it happened at all. The next morning, Saturday, October 31st, it's possible that Hirard left the house, though we can't say for certain. If he did, he may have returned either later that day or on Sunday, November 1st.
4: He did report he went upstairs at some point and saw that Sibylla's bedroom door was closed. He may have heard Nicky, the dog, barking or scratching behind another door and he may have called out to Sibylla.
6: Mrs. Sibylla, are you okay? Can I get you anything?
2: There was no answer. Hirard remembers opening the door and seeing her in bed. It's unclear if he knew she was dead, as he changed his story several times. In any case, he left the house but did not call the police.
4: Meanwhile, a neighbor noticed that the blinds in Sibilla's house were drawn throughout the entire weekend and thought it was odd. Then, the dog Nikki began barking, and that's when the neighbors thought there was something amiss. On Monday, November 2nd, they called the police.
2: The police arrived at the front door, which had no sign of forced entry. They could hear Nikki barking from the second floor. They banged on the door and announced themselves. When there was no answer, they broke a window to enter the house.
4: One of the officers found Nikki locked in a room and let him out. They called out again, but there was no answer. They checked the first floor and they didn't see anything and then they climbed the stairs to the second floor.
2: When the police entered the bedroom, they saw the money she had left on the nightstand was still there. They found Sibylla, the blonde dolly, in her sleeveless white nightgown with her head on the pillow, still under the satin duvet, strangled to death.
4: But the blonde Dolly's death was only the beginning of an investigation that still haunts the Netherlands to this day. Next week, we'll explore who could have killed Sibylla.
2: Because there are a lot of people who may have wanted her dead. She was in a dangerous line of work, made all the more dangerous by her insistence on keeping a detailed log of her high-profile clients and the conversations she had or overheard.
4: Maybe someone wanted to keep her quiet. Maybe someone thought that if they couldn't have her, no one could. Maybe someone really hated sex workers. Maybe it was just a random intruder who wanted her money.
2: There are a lot of options, but all of them end in the same thing. A woman strangled to death in her bed at 32. A woman who had been living two lives for such a long time.
4: And now she wasn't even living one.
2: Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, please leave a five star review or tell us what you think on social media. We are on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.
4: If we live till next time.
2: Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Angela Page and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Osteen, Kimberly Holland, Steve Pinto, and Dan Velasquez.